Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person or at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you are getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Well, over the years, I've had the privilege of interviewing individuals who have not just lived incredible lives, but have generously shared their experiences with others. Hearing what they have learned is encouraging and inspiring. Today, I'm going to introduce you to Jamie Ayton, a disaster expert who was faced with his own personal disaster when he was diagnosed with stage four cancer at the age of 35. I feel so lucky to have him on the show because now several years into remission, he's able to share insights, observations, and advice that draws from both his personal cancer journey and his deep understanding of how people respond to crisis. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Jamie. Jamie is the founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute and the Blanchard Chair of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College in Illinois. He's been awarded over $6 million in external funding for research to help others cultivate resilience amidst personal mass and humanitarian disasters. Currently, he is studying psychosocial coping among cancer and natural disaster survivors. He's an award-winning author, recipient of an American Psychological Association Early Career Award, and received the 2016 FEMA Community Preparedness Champion Award at the White House. He is frequently cited or interviewed in media outlets like the Washington Post, USA Today, MSNBC, Fox News, and CBS. He's also written widely for a general audience in outlets like Time, the Washington Post, the Inquirer, and religious news services. Jamie's a sought-after speaker. Recent notable speaking engagements include talks given at the University of Cambridge, World Economic Forum, Global Young Leaders Conference, and George Washington University Cancer Institute. He currently serves as a Fight Colorectal Cancer Ambassador, good friends of ours there, and he is also a contributor to Cure Magazine's Voices and Blogs at Fight Colorectal Cancer's Emotional First Aid and Psychology Today's Hope and Resilience. Whew. Wow, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we dive in, uh, Jamie, tell us how you're doing today. I'm doing really well. So I just got back. I've been traveling internationally and uh, feel rested and and in good health. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. So um, some of our listeners may have been a little startled in my opening to hear that you're a disaster psychologist. Jamie, what exactly is a disaster psychologist? Well, I started off as your typical psychologist, kind of the one that most of us might have had experience with or that comes to mind of, you know, doing the typical one-on-one counseling in an office. But right out of graduate school, right as I was taking my first uh, professor position, um, uh, Hurricane Katrina struck just six days after I moved to South Mississippi. Mm. Mm. And so I 
found myself getting involved providing mental health care, doing mental health research, and helping others through that time of disaster. And that ended up being my life trajectory that I've gone on since then to end up researching or doing trainings or helping after probably around 30 or so different disasters all over the globe. Wow. Wow. So, Jamie, did your experience as a disaster psychologist help you when you received the news of your cancer diagnosis, or did all that knowledge just kind of go out the window, which I know happens sometimes? <laughs> yeah, you know, when, it, when the news was actually getting broken to me, it definitely went out the window. You know, as the oncologist was confirming for me the reports and letting me know how advanced the cancer was, that, uh, you know, I was really just in shock and couldn't get my head around the news and started getting choked up and, you know, was tearing up and in the middle of the consulting room there. And my doctor, with his best bedside manner, asked me what I did to try to kind of pull me back together a little bit. And so I shared with him that I'm a disaster psychologist and you know, I run this disaster research center. And then he kind of paused and, with his best bedside manner, goes on to say, well, you're in for your own personal disaster. So hmm. when I first got diagnosed, you know, it wasn't helpful in that moment. But later on, it was useful because it allowed me to think about what have I seen in the field or what has our research shown, you know, to be helpful to try to then utilize some of that uh, in my own personal journey. Mm-hmm. So, Jamie, tell our listeners, um, with what cancer were you diagnosed? How, how were you diagnosed? What were, your, what were your symptoms? What drove you to the doctor? I mean, you were a young guy. And um, at that point, you know, what was the progn- stage of disease and the prognosis? And then what were they telling you about, about treatment? Well, when I got officially diagnosed, I was 35, but I had actually had some symptoms a year prior to that and, you know, was having a lot of stomach discomfort and just kind of feeling off and really tired. And I just thought it was because I've got a, a busy work life, but also I've got probably even more of a busy personal life at that time with uh, three young daughters at home uh, that kept me quite busy. So I just thought it's that stage of life. Um, but then went to the doctor and he sent me on to a specialist and the specialist said, oh, well, based on my age, that there wasn't anything to worry about, that I just needed more fiber in my diet. And that if my symptoms come back, to come back and see him. And the symptoms ended up going away for almost a year when -hmm. they came back really strongly at that point and went to my primary doc again. And immediately he said, no, you've got to go have more tests done. And so at that point, that's when they discovered that uh, I had a tumor in my colon. And then through further tests found that it had spread and led to a mass in my pelvis area. And so at age 35, I was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Wow. Wow. So what was the plan, Jamie? What did they tell you about, about uh, treatment, about what you were in for at that point, and, and about your prognosis? You know, there, there were times when my healthcare providers were sharing with me about like treatment plans or what was getting ready to happen. And in many ways, it reminded me of like when I've deployed internationally to a country that I've never been. You know, even though I've done a lot of deployments overseas, there's still always a bit of this kind of culture shock where you're trying to learn the language, you're trying to understand the rhythm, how people think about and use time and what resources are available. And suddenly I felt like I was kind of in a foreign country, not knowing which way was up as I was trying to navigate the healthcare system. But thankfully, um, my wife is a nurse midwife now, but was a nurse at that point. And so she was able to help me but navigate a lot of that process. And so can you tell us, Jamie, about, about, your, about your treatment plan? Did you have surgery? Did you have chemo? What was, uh, what was, the, what was the treatment plan? 
you know, I, I've joked with friends that uh, I think my treatment plan was a bit of a kind of a scorched earth policy, the, mm. the way that uh, they approached it. You know, so pretty immediately, I mean, it was like within about a week or so's time uh, of getting my diagnosis and, and getting everything confirmed that I ended up doing um, for the whole summer uh, oral chemotherapy twice a day and then also doing radiation five days a week. And so that went on for the summer. And then I had a few weeks off to kind of rest from that, which I was really downtrodden afterwards, and then ended up having a major surgery to remove the the tumors and lymph nodes and everything around it, and ended up being bedridden for close to a month um, after that, and I had to also got a permanent colostomy as a result of that surgery. And then right about the time that I started eventually uh, getting better around the end of November, early December, and by better meaning just, you know, I was up and able to move around some, that I thought I was through all my treatments. And that's when my doctor said that based on the tumor boards uh, consulting, that they actually thought that I should go through another round of chemotherapy, but this time it was going to be for six months of drip chemotherapy. And so had that uh, process go on, and then finally, a month after, or six weeks after, was able to go through and, and get another scan and find out that there was no evidence of disease. And uh, mm. grateful to be able to share that continue to have no, no evidence of disease at this point um, at wow. five years out. Wow, Jamie, that's great news. Happy to hear it. Happy to hear it. Um, so I imagine when they told you you needed that second round of, of chemo for that long period of time, I bet that hit you pretty hard. Could you talk about how that impacted you? Yeah, it, it hit me almost in the same way of finding out the news of having cancer. You know, it was that um, overwhelming to me that I, I wasn't seeing that coming. I, I thought that I had finally made it through. And I just remember in that moment of thinking, there's no way I've got the endurance to make it through another six months. You know, I just felt like I was starting to see the, the end of the tunnel when, you know, it ended up being a train was the light, <laughs> you know, when I when yeah. I got there. And I remember telling my doctor that I wasn't sure that I was going to do it, um, that uh, I wanted to see the research. I wanted to see the data showing that this was the course of treatment that was going to be most helpful. And so I ended up getting home, and a day or so later, one of the staff members at the hospital sent me an email link that provided some of the, the data. But what it was was really more of just kind of a consumer uh, review of you know, recommendations. And I fired back with, hey, I actually just published a book on evidence-based practices. I actually want to see a clinical study or even better, a meta-analysis, uh, you know, which is like a summary of lots of studies. Um, and so he ended up providing that, and I decided to move forward. But then as a result, he said that I had to start bringing in every week research studies that talked about the psychosocial coping aspect of cancer. And then anytime he would want to train, change something for healthcare, he knew to come with a research study for me. <laughs> that was quite a bargain. <la> yeah, so I, 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 was, I was literally a pain in the butt. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, we're coming up to our first break here, but I want to ask you about something you wrote recently in Psychology Today. Um, you said that you had come to realize that a person can be strong even when they feel weak. Can you explain to us uh, what you mean with that statement? You know, there's a lot of 
language that we use um, in the cancer community about maybe we're fighting cancer or battling cancer. And quite honestly, through a lot of my experience, I struggled with that because I felt like everything was happening to me, that I felt weak. But then as I went through that process, I started doing some research on not just resilience, but this idea of fortitude and realizing that endurance and perseverance is also a sign of strength. So it helped me to reframe the way I thought about what uh, strength and power meant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and just quickly, we've just got one more minute or so, Jamie, but what were some of the uh, emotional challenges that you dealt with through your diagnosis? Well, I'm pretty sure I went through about all of them. You know, there, there was one day, I remember I, I was standing in the kitchen and all of a sudden I, I just started just sobbing. And, and I don't just mean crying. I mean like the ugly, shaking turns mm-hmm. into dry heave type of crying. Mm-hmm. And um, being the good psychologist I am, I went and pulled up some, some of my paperwork and gave myself what's called the Beck Depression Inventory. And so I didn't quite mm-hmm. meet the full range of uh, symptoms there, but I did struggle with bouts of depression later and still do at times mm-hmm. and have struggled with trauma, anxiety, um, you know, really the whole gamut. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk a little bit more about some of that uh, in our next segment. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, we're talking with Jamie Aiden, who is a cancer survivor uh, and author of the book, A Walking Disaster. We're going to have a chance to talk um, uh, a little bit about uh, about Jamie's book. We're going to talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned that you were down in the in Louisiana, in Mississippi, a few days before uh, uh, Katrina hit, talking about that experience, your cancer experience, and what led you to uh, uh, to write the book, Jamie. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer care, 
the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene, Lilly Oncology, Merck, Bristol-Myers-Squibb, and Insight. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. With us today is cancer survivor and disaster, disaster expert, Jamie Ayton. Jamie is the executive director of Humanitarian Disaster Institute and associate professor of humanitarian disaster leadership at Wheaton College in Illinois. He is also the author of A Walking Disaster, What Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience. Um, Jamie, one of the reasons that I've been looking forward to our conversation today is that you are so unbelievably candid about your experiences, both personal uh, and professional. I think you're able to articulate and share emotions and thoughts in a way um, that, frankly, many of our listeners and folks dealing with a cancer uh, diagnosis struggle with. Um, uh, You shared with me that for the longest time you didn't want to be part of the cancer community. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to a number of people who've confided in me that they weren't, you know, quote unquote, support group people or didn't want to sit in a room with other uh, people facing cancer. But why, why did you feel that way? Well, you know, there, there were a lot of things that were kind of happening and, and it's changed over time uh, in terms of kind of the motivation. And, and part of it early on was the hard part for me was accepting that I was the person now that needed help. You know, that I, I've spent my entire career, you know, helping people around the globe when those worst case scenarios happen. You know, if it's a tsunami or a natural disaster or a mass shooting, that I'm one of those people that go to provide help. And so it was really hard for me to give up that helping role and to become the helpee. So during the treatments, that was a, a big barrier for me. But eventually I was able to accept it. But then the other thing was because I was so sick and the um, cancer had been so advanced and my treatments came on so quickly, 
there was oftentimes where I could not go out to be around other people, you know, where my blood cells or counts, you know, would start to dive. And so I needed them to not be around others. And so I never really had the opportunity to get connected during that cancer treatment. And that was pretty much a year straight. So in some ways, I was kind of isolated and barely had the energy for the relationships I already had in my life. And I think a positive was that uh, the supports that I did have were largely there. You know, there were some people that fell off the, the face of the earth, so to speak, but most of my support system was there for me. So I had this kind of built-in community, but it wasn't until years later, and actually it was this past March, when I had a friend who encouraged me to post a, a Fight CRC strong arm selfie during March for uh, correctal awareness, um, cancer awareness. Uh, months. And when I did that, suddenly I had all this response from others in the cancer community that responded to that post and started getting connected and finding out resources and, you know, hearing people for the first time as I'm getting into some online support groups of having language for things that I thought what I was feeling was strange or, you know, experiences that I had that I couldn't articulate or put my finger on it to be able to have somebody else go through the same thing was so encouraging. So it took me a long time to get there, but I'm, I'm glad that now uh, I'm glad to be a part of that community. All right. So let's talk about that a little bit more so our listeners can, can get a visual here. Uh, hashtag strong arm selfie. What are we talking about here? Are you, describe the photo that you uploaded um, well, so that our listeners can I, I, get a was, sense of it and, and, again, sort of how this sort of unfolded. Yeah, so a friend of mine who I had connected with uh, um, over time, I, a couple years or so after I found out that there was no evidence of cancer was the first time I wrote a, a brief op-ed uh, about my experience for the Washington Post, and she had read that and reached out to just kind of connect and say that she related to some of those experiences, and so we'd stayed in touch on and off over the years. And during um, this past March, she reached out and said, hey, you, you should really get connected to the fight CRC and colon cancer community. Uh, there's some great resources out there that I think would be useful for you to be connected to and that would be helpful. And so she's like, you know, why don't you try posting a, a selfie? This is something that we do that raises awareness and also leads to some donations for future research. And I, I've made it very clear that I'm not normally the uh, arm-flexing, selfie-taking <laughs> kind of guy. That's, that's <laughs> nor- normally not me. Um, but that's exactly what I did. So here I am in my, like, you know, button-up dress shirt, uh, flexing in front of the mirror and, uh, you know, giving it the best Arnold Schwarzenegger pose I could give it. And that's <laughs> what went online there. So... And then uh, it ended up getting picked up by some other outlets, and it was funny because one of my colleagues was like, so, Jamie, this is by far the most interesting professional photo I've ever seen. So, (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Um, Jamie, you've also talked about not wanting to be seen as your cancer or defined by your cancer diagnosis, Um, but can you talk about how your cancer diagnosis changed how you perceive yourself and maybe how you thought about how others perceived you? Yeah, it was, that was a major challenge for me that it really shook my self-confidence that it changed the way I think about or saw myself, you know, and some of that came from, you know, starting to have my cognitive faculties starting to go, you know, so there were things that like, like I remember it was probably about seven months into treatments and at that point, I was coming off of medical leave. I'd taken the full fall semester off, but I was back 
teaching about a couple hours a week, and that's about all I could handle. Sometimes it had to be every other week. But I was still trying to teach, and I was teaching a class on crisis counseling and trauma care. And I was excited because it was the week that I was supposed to lecture on disasters. You know, so this is what I've been doing for my entire career. It's what I think about, sleep about, you know, breathe. And all of a sudden, I couldn't remember terms for like uh, 9-11 or to even say like how the Levy broke, you know, in New Orleans. I couldn't come up with that language. My mind just could not physically go there. And so I really struggled with my self-confidence and wondering, am I ever going to get back to how I was? And then also just physically, you know, it was so downtrodden. And then especially because I had a permanent colostomy, I had really struggled with, um, you know, issues around body image. And to be frank, that's still something that I do struggle with uh, time to time. And now have permanent, uh, some permanent long-term chronic symptoms like neuropathy in my hands and my feet. Uh, but I've started to learn that, you know, if I didn't have those symptoms, then, you know, that, that these symptoms I can still learn to live with. And so it's taken me time to be able to integrate that into how I see myself. And there are still, as I mentioned, times that I struggle, but I definitely have more good days than bad days. That's great. That's great. I know, Jamie, in some essays and interviews you've done, you've openly shared with your, your struggles with, with survivor's guilt. This is a place where, again, you know, you bring a unique perspective from your professional work. Can you tell our listeners what the term means and share with us what you were feeling and how it was impacting you? I, I mean, I'm curious, did you recognize it right away for what it was, or did you need some time or distance to kind of process that? Oh, no, it actually took me um, quite some time to be able to understand what I was struggling with. You know, so I, I finished my treatment. And um, shortly after that, I ended up losing a, a friend of mine at the college to colon cancer as well. And there had also been a couple of other people on campus that I'd been close to that also died of cancer all within a year's time. And wow. Wow. I thought I was struggling with anger, you know, that I thought I was upset, you know, both you know, physiologically of kind of being that fight or flight response, but also too, I, I felt like I was, had a lot of pent up anger emotionally. And then I went to a play here on campus and uh, I won't mention the name of the play cause I don't want to give away the ending, but at the very end of the play, you realize that the main character had been struggling and the whole town really had been struggling with survivor's guilt. And it was in that moment when all of a sudden I realized, like, oh, my gosh, what I thought was just anger or maybe depression, this is survivor's guilt that I've been struggling with. And afterwards, I went up because the director of the play was actually best friends with the friend that was close to me. And I went up to him, and I had shared, you know, I know you know part of my story, but what you don't know is how I've been struggling with guilt and seeing this play helped me understand for the first time in over a year now that it's been guilt that's been plaguing me. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, Jamie, I'd like to hear your thoughts about asking for and accepting help when you're living with cancer. I mean, as a disaster psychologist, as a minister, you're the person who swoops in when the unimaginable happens to help people cope, return to their normal lives or, or, or the new normal, as we sometimes say. But with yeah. your cancer diagnosis, you know, you really struggled with being on the receiving end of that equation. And a, and a wise friend once said to me, we're all the type of people who need help. You know, people say, I'm not the type of person. We're all the type of people who need help and need need connection and need community. Um, can you tell us about your struggle and, and, and share with us what receiving, opening yourself up to receiving that help really taught you? 
Well, you know, it, it kind of is tied into even that idea of not only my identity, because I'd seen myself as a helper. So the more I got help, the more I felt like I was losing kind of a core part of who I was and how I saw myself as a person and even professionally. And then on top of that, it was made difficult for me because I started wondering, am I always going to be the person that needs help? And it was hard for me to have people to see me, you know, not thinking clearly or to be around me when I was feeling sick or, you know, just really kind of uh, almost be unrecognizable to some people because I had lost so much weight uh, during a period of that process and worried that I'm going to make others feel worried or stressed and anxious just by being around me. So, so there were a lot of factors that were happening there. But then eventually what I realized is that we can either use our wounds um, and our scars as walls to keep people away, or we can use them as doorways to let people in through those wounds and to be able to have a more authentic and deep experience and to let others see who we truly are. And that ended up being very powerful for me, but it took a while for me to get there. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, when you're in that role and you're always used to being the one who steps in and swoops in and, 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 and being the helper and, and helping people navigate and helping them get their questions answered, it must be tough to be on the, um, the, on the receiving end of that. But we certainly, we certainly see the power of community at our organization all the time and the power of those, of, of, of those special and rare, uh, and rare connections. We're talking today with Jamie Ayton. Jamie is the founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute and Blanchard Chair of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College in Illinois. Jamie is a colorectal cancer survivor and uh, author of a book called A Walking Disaster, What Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We've got a lot more to discuss with Jamie, including really talking about that Katrina uh, experience. We're going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Azi, Gilead, Janssen Biotech and Pfizer Oncology. We are having a fascinating conversation with cancer survivor and disaster expert, Jamie Ayton. Jamie was 35 years old, married with three young daughters when he was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer. Uh, Jamie, can you share with us your experience of Hurricane um, Katrina? You sort of touched on it, but that was certainly um, a life-defining moment uh, that set you on a path of specializing in disasters. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. You know, I had never set out to study disasters. And when it happened in my own backyard, though, saw the opportunity to be able to use my training as a psychologist to be able to reach out and help people as well as doing research to help others. And going through that experience, one of the things I saw firsthand was the importance of community. And we've gone on to show in major disaster zone after disaster zone just how important having social support is Mm. to effective coping with trauma or, you know, life challenges and adversity. And when I look at my cancer experience, it was very much the same way, that if it wasn't for that loving and supportive community around me, I don't think we'd be having this conversation today. Wow. Wow. So let's dig in a little on your professional expertise, Jamie. So my understanding is that there are two kinds of disasters, large-scale disasters like earthquakes, mass shootings, floods, um, terrorist attacks, things like that, and then personal disasters, things like a health crisis. Um, How are people's reactions similar or different in both cases, either individually but also as a group? Well, you know how you had asked if going through Katrina was a life-changing experience, Mm -hmm. and I think that that also oftentimes happens with major health crises, including cancer. You know, one of the things I remember, and in fact, I still say it to this very day, is that I often talk about my life in terms of before Katrina and after Katrina, Mm -hmm. and that's very common for people that have gone through disasters, but now I also have caught myself saying before cancer and Mm -hmm. after cancer. And as I've gotten recently connected to the cancer community, finding out that I'm not alone in that, that it can sometimes separate our life from the way things were to the way they are now. And both can also turn our, our worlds upside down to you know, make us question our, our experiences, you know, how we understand and see the world, and both can cause a lot of significant distress in our lives. But one of the things that I saw that was very different for me 
was that when Katrina threatened, I was able to pack up and evacuate. But when cancer struck, there was no evacuation. That mm. time, the cancer was actually, the disaster was happening within. And then that's where the, the title for my book comes from, that I was, you know, a walking disaster. I couldn't escape. No matter where I went, it was always there with me. And so I ended up having um, a conversation. I was giving a, a talk at a conference a couple years ago and met another survivor who described the cancer experience of, like, wearing a giant hoodie and um, said that, you know, some days cancer sw- almost swallows us whole and the hoodie becomes like a straight jacket pulled tight around us, but that as survivors, what we need to try to do is to keep living even when we have that um, uh, hoodie on and learn to try to pull the hood down as best as we can and pull our sleeves up as best as we can and keep trying to live life even though there's the challenges that come with having or having had cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, we hear sometimes cancer survivors and, and, and folks who've, you know, been, been through war uh, talk about a similar experience in terms of PTSD, in terms of, you know, the, tra- the trauma of the experience, in terms of, of even, you know, frankly, physical scars, you know, mental scars. So, mm-hmm. you know, certainly yeah. we hear some similarities in those, uh, in those instances. Um, you know, I asked you earlier about how your background in disasters helped you cope with your cancer, but I'm also wondering if, if maybe it was a two-way street. Has your cancer experience changed, impacted, influenced how you approach your work? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's things that I thought I had understood from a scientific perspective, but then after I went through it personally, it ended up really putting a lot of the research um, in a new light for me that I've started to think about things very differently because of my cancer experience. So, for example, um, one of the things that I had done some research on prior to my cancer experience was on post-traumatic growth. You know, this idea that we can grow and, you know, Mm -hmm. strengthen our character and, you know, become more resilient from going through difficult times, which I totally believe that that can be the case. But I realized that it doesn't always look the way most people think it looks. You know, so for example, I I remember um, somebody shortly after my diagnosis um, and I was starting my treatments and really sick, I remember them telling me that they actually said that you must be growing so much from going through this hardship. Um, and I remember thinking, I would gladly trade this with you because I'm not feeling a lot of growth right now. <laughs> and then even after, you know, I finished my last treatment, it was probably a good seven months before I just started to get back to my previous um, level of functioning, both physically and even intellectually. You know, mm-hmm. I remember about a month out, um, I was working on a project, uh, jumped right back into work, and was... Um, talking to some of my colleagues and said, oh, I think I'm back. I'm finally thinking more clear. And then a few months would go by and I would have kind of like another improvement that would jump up. And I'd be like, oh, no, no, I'm now finally back. Well, that went on for like almost seven months before I finally got back and then took even longer to get my confidence back. You know, wondering like, oh, am I still, you know, struggling as much as I was earlier and just not aware of it. And what I learned, though, is that most people think that that growth is almost automatic, that just because you've gone through something Mm. that you're going to have growth. But one of the things that we've adjusted our research uh, since I uh, recovered from cancer and what we found is that for most people, it actually takes a lot longer and typically at minimum of around six months after going through a major trauma because it takes just that long to kind of get your head around, you know, what happened to you and to start processing it and, and working through it. 
And then also we've learned that growth sometimes is a coping mechanism, that sometimes that's something that we tell ourselves to try to make it uh, more feasible or make it bearable for what we're going through. And then other times it's important to realize that people will have growth, but also still have a lot of trauma. You know, that just because maybe you have grown doesn't mean that the debris of the disaster you've gone through, whether it's personal or mass disaster, has just gone away. You know, so it's really much more nuanced. Yeah, you know, uh, Jamie, at our at our program at the cancer support community, we we help people with a lot of the practical things related to a cancer diagnosis. You know, with education and and information and and patient navigation and second opinion and all those kinds of things. But there's a whole part of our program that helps people really deal with the kind of some of the existential type things that you're talking yeah. about. And, 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 you know, we talk a lot, for example, about, about meaning making, you know, how do you, how do you find meaning, you know, in the cancer experience? And for some folks, you know, that, that that's a longer exploration, you know, than it is for, uh, that, than it is for others, but um, certainly a journey that, that people take when they're, you know, at our different centers around the country. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by your thoughts about the use of words like, like resilience, like, fortitude, like grit, um, you know, what did those words mean to you before, you know, and what are they, what do they mean to you now? Or are there other words in your vocabulary, you know, since your cancer experience that, that have a different meaning for you? Yeah, you know, I think a big shift for me was in my understanding of the word resilient or resilience. You know, so again, this is what I've spent my professional career studying. And so I thought I kind of understood the concept. (laughs) But I remember when I was going through my treatments that I had several people, you know, whether it was caregivers or friends or, you know, even healthcare providers that would say things like, I appreciate the resilience that you're showing. And I remember feeling like a phony in those moments because I know what the definition of resilience, which is the ability to adapt and bounce back. And there was no bouncing or, you know, back happening for me. And then even after I finished treatments, like I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that bouncing back was much more like a slow pace up up a hill. It wasn't a bounce for me. You know, it took a long time to get mm-hmm. back to that. Mm-hmm. And so... At the same time, if you apply that definition strictly, some of the people I lost in my life wouldn't meet that pure definition of resilient, you know, like the strict scientific definition, because their bodies didn't give them the opportunity to bounce back. You know, I was fortunate, but their bodies didn't allow them to be able to do so. And one of the things I started thinking about was, but there's still a sense of resilience. What is that? And so I went back and started studying philosophy and looking at other social science perspectives and really started to find the language of fortitude, which is our ability to metabolize suffering or to think of it as the virtue of uh, or character strength of adversity, that it helps us to be able to persevere and endure long suffering. And so that provided me a new way of understanding what I went through. And now we're also doing that um, type of work in in our research. And we found that there's a difference between resilience, grit, and fortitude. We need all of them. But they, and there's a lot of similarity, but they are slightly different. You know, resilience is our ability mm-hmm. to adapt to a situation to overcome. Grit is kind of that, that ingrained sense of kind of like pushing our way through. But fortitude, like I mentioned just a moment ago, is what allows us to kind of be sustained for long-term suffering. And so psychologically, we were able to, through our tests, show that there's those types of differences there. Mm, fascinating. Uh, Jamie, we've got a couple quick minutes till our break, but um, I know you've studied the impact of disasters on individuals, families, communities. You had your own beautiful family when you were diagnosed. H- how did you use your knowledge to help 
your wife and your three girls cope with and through your diagnosis? You know, one of the things that um, I think was really helpful was holding on to optimism that, you know, oftentimes when bad things happen, we can get so overwhelmed, it's hard to ever see the positive. Now, with time, though, that actually became a hindrance for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where it was, um, you know, there were moments when I think I tried to put on that life was better than what it really was and ended up keeping sometimes extra help from coming to our, our side when we needed it. And so, you know, I think it can be a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. but it also taught me that there was a difference between optimism and hope. You know, that mm-hmm. optimism is that belief that everything's going to be okay, but hope is that things are still going to work out even if things aren't okay mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so having that, um, that, that perspective really helped to pull me through. Yeah, yeah. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking to Jamie Ayton. Jamie's a colorectal cancer survivor, author of the book, A Walking Disaster. And we're talking with Jamie about his experience uh, with, with cancer and uh, the impact on him, uh, on his family, his uh, on his career as a disaster uh, as a disaster expert, as a minister. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we have more Uh, to discuss with Jamie. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tableau. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Agios, Estellas Pharma U.S., Janssen Oncology, Taiho Oncology, and Veristem Oncology. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We've been having a fantastic conversation with cancer survivor and disaster expert, Jamie Ayton. Jamie's also the author of the book, A Walking Disaster, What Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience. Jamie, for most of your cancer journey, you've been intensely private, but you eventually became more and more vocal about your experience with the social media campaign, with columns in Psychology Today, Cure Today, even speaking at survivorship conferences. Um, and now you've written a book. Uh, and I mentioned the uh, title of the book, A Walking Disaster, What Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience. Jamie, why did you decide to write this book? And please tell our listeners what the book is about and, and what they might gain from reading it. Sure. Yeah, so the, the book really, I, I try to draw from both my personal experience of going through cancer as well as the experiences I've had of researching disasters around the world to think about how can we better cope and make meaning and, and really try to still find ways to thrive even amidst adver- at, through adversity. But, but also the, I wrote the book not only for the person going through the experience, but also for those that are the caregivers to help them to be able to think about how to provide care to their loved ones that might be struggling. And when I think about my own experience of, of going through that, it was one of those things that I, I remember looking back to some of my disaster work where survivors oftentimes would come up and you might have somebody go through the soup line and tell each person in the soup line almost the identical story over and over. Or then you would hear maybe with each time they told it, they would share just a little bit more information. And what's going on that we've learned psychologically with people after trauma or during trauma is that um, we gain mastery by telling our stories. But at the same time, if we push people to tell their stories too quickly or when they're not ready, that we can actually make the trauma much more worse for the person who's facing adversity. And so in my own experience, you know, it took a long time before I felt like I was ready to talk about it. And I remember a few years out, was I was giving a talk about disaster helping and providing support to others during disasters. And I ended up telling a, just like a one-minute story about my cancer experience as an example. And after it was over, I had people for over an hour coming up to me just asking questions about that one moment of that um, day-long training that I had given. And I realized that it really connected with people and that as I shared that and I talked with them, that it also helped me to better understand my own cancer experience. 
And so that's what really made me decide to share my story was that I wanted to be able to help others, and it's also helping me at the same time. Mm, wow. That's really powerful. Um, Jamie, I know one of the things you discuss in the book, I think maybe for the first time, is your colostomy. Can you tell our listeners what a colostomy is and about your struggle to really kind of come to peace with it? Yeah, so the, the way I uh, explained it to my children when I found out that this was going to happen was I explained to them that dad's getting new plumbing. <laughs> and, uh, so, so what that means is they actually resection or, un- you know, they, they cut the, the colon. And so now I have a stoma in my stomach area and um, that's how I go to the restroom. And so I have to wear like a pouch or like a bag, um, which is what the uh, airport security called it when I went through the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, so I've, I've got that and it's normally not noticeable. Uh, to, to most people, and I'm aware that it's there. But for me, it really took on kind of a symbolic meaning early on, you know, that uh, I had this experience after Katrina going door-to-door, checking on people and doing research. And you've maybe seen um, in New Orleans where uh, some of the homes would have these, like, orange circles with an X through it, and then they would have, like, a number on it. Well, that and it was spray painted, and that's what the first responders did to tell you if somebody was found or if anything was found dead, maybe an animal, in that house. And so that's how they were marking if people um, had survived or not survived in that home. And I remember the first time I actually saw myself after my surgery and seeing, you know, the scars run up my stomach and um, seeing my, my stoma and, and the surgery scars there. And to me, it reminded me of kind of like those FEMA uh, spray-painted symbols that, and I felt like I had already been marked for death. And so mm-hmm. when I looked at that, it just reminded me of how bad things were. And so it was really hard for me to accept it. But over time... What I've, if it wasn't for this colostomy, I don't think I would still be here and be healthy, that that was one of the steps that needed to, to happen. And that was definitely the thing that was hardest for me to, to share openly with others. And what I've come to find, though, is that oftentimes I'm not the only person. You know, like if I share in a talk or something, that there's always people that come up and say, hey, I've, I've got one as well, or my mm-hmm. mother had one. And again, it's by sharing that scar more openly with people that I'm finding a closer connection with my community and, and even strangers. Mm-hmm. Jamie, you you also share what you see now. You see a difference between being a survivor and survivorship. What did you experience that influenced your view of those terms? And what do those words mean for you now? Well, you know, when Katrina passed over my community when we were living in South Mississippi, as soon as it passed, then everybody in that community was a survivor. And it went over our community in the matter of, I I don't know, looking back, you know, it was a matter of minutes that it went over the community. But with cancer, it was like having a hurricane hover over me for over a year and still it feels like it threatens every once in a while, you know, that there's a trigger that reminds me of, of my cancer or could it come back or is this pain in my back actually, uh, you know, a tumor or something, you know, so it does come back. And one of the things that I started to become aware of is that for me, it was really more surviving during my treatments and it wasn't until getting on the other side of it that I felt um, the way I would describe myself was as a survivor. But I recognize, though, that that's very different from person to person. You know, I've got some friends in the cancer community who would say that the word survivor doesn't 
um, or excuse me, isn't helpful, that they don't like it, that they don't identify with it. Yeah. And I know there's been a lot of disagreement with both yeah. in the, the cancer community and the healthcare community, but I actually think that disagreement is a good thing. Yes. And the reason for that is that it means we haven't found the right language yet. And it also tells us that we need multiple ways of talking about our experience, that in the same way I might choose survivor, don't make somebody else choose that if that's not how they view themselves. You know, so like, for example, if um, you go to the doctor, they ask about how do you identify in terms of your ethnicity or Mm -hmm. race or, you know, and there's selections. And then there's always this other category of other. Maybe you define yourself differently. Mm-hmm. Well, what we've done is we're forcing people, when we only give people permission to use one term, we're forcing them into a box that may not fit them. And that's not fair to the person who's going through the treatment. So I think it is helpful, um, you know, because it, it can help, you know, like in the disaster work, I always correct my students not to call somebody who's gone through a trauma a victim, you know, mm-hmm. that they're a survivor because it, mm-hmm. it's an empowering language. Yep. But for some people, that may not be useful. Yes, yes, understood. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we've been heavily involved in those discussions, so I I get what you're saying. Um, I can't believe we're nearly out of time here, Jamie. It's been such a pleasure uh, speaking with you. You have a really unique perspective, and I'm I'm really grateful for your candor, your openness about your own experience, and um, it's just been a pleasure having you on the show today. I just want to quickly remind our listeners at the Cancer Support Community, we have a whole range of free support and navigation and educational services for people with all cancers at any stage of disease. Um, We've got uh, services in person, online, through the phone. Uh, you can visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org to find a list of our locations. You can call us at 888-793-9355 to connect right now with one of our counselors. I'm Kim Tivaldo. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.